Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Welcome to Story Paths, and to this, our third and final episode on the subject of community. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host, and as the host of this podcast about stories, I've actually been surprised to be drawn so deeply into this topic of community. And yet, there is a deep link between storytelling and community. Community is where storytelling takes place, after all. It's whose stories are about, and it's who they're for. Stories weave webs between members of communities and between communities. Stories also reveal existing connective strands that we might have otherwise missed. Stories bring me into the experience of those very different from myself, giving them a place in my webs of meaning, and perhaps myself in theirs. Stories can also break webs. They can hurt as well as heal. Through good story, I see that there are no bad people. Everyone has a past that formed them and motives behind their choices. No one is intrinsically wrong. Stories show that we are in narrative ecosystems together. And conversely, through empathic relations with those in my life and with different aspects of myself, I can better understand the characters in stories. I find resonance between those characters and my own experience, and I'm able to resonate with a broader range of characters as my own experience of myself broadens. There's an adage that every story needs conflict. Now, conflict can and does break community. With all our different views, contentions, ways of thinking and being, how can we get along? Conflict can be a community killer, but that depends on how it's handled. Now, there's that adage that every story needs conflict, and I've often pushed back against this. Because don't stories also need peace? I've seen too many characters bickering and battling just for the sake of conflict and drama. Yet, in story as in life, conflict can be an opening into a deeper strata of experience, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. 
And so that's where we will begin today, with conflict. You may remember Che Berriot from previous episodes. He travels between communities as a builder with wood and also a bard, learning from the communities and sharing ideas between them, acting as a pollinator. I am interested in conflict and community and the tensions in relationship. Conflict can be a gift if we receive it that way. And we have some codes of conduct of a certain level of human respect uh, maintained. There's something really potent about people feeling heightened emotion, feeling very passionate about something. It usually means there's a need, a deep value or a boundary or something that that is making them have this deep emotional reaction. We so often suppress that and we think, oh, it's a bad thing. It's going to rock the boat. It's going to cause problems. It's going to disconnect us. But from what I've observed and experienced, I see the opposite to be true. I feel like when people try to avoid these points of tension or conflict, they suppress it, and that actually starts to disconnect because they're not speaking to the thing that when they address it and overcome it, can actually bring them closer together. Instead, they're afraid of the risk that they're going to lose the connection, and so they won't risk it to find more clarity or find more depth. Often what happens is that the connection is slowly it's stifled because they're not being fully authentic in it. Yeah, we have this deep fear of, of abandonment or losing our friend, our community. If we're to really give voice to our, some of our deeper feelings and stronger emotions, I'm starting to orient more in my own life to recognize that anytime I do feel a heightened emotion, I want to welcome the messenger there because that's often where new, deeper understandings come. I have a vision for a community where people have that level of self-awareness to know that anytime they are activated or irritated, it's a gift and it's an opportunity for them to bring more of their unconscious into conscious awareness. And those are people that are stimulating this, this activation. They're offering us this gift. If there's enough trust in the container, let's call it, of our ideal community. There's enough safety and trust there for someone to speak really passionately about something they care deeply about, which is what has gotten them so upset, and be heard. And maybe another person who has a differing opinion or perspective, they can also speak passionately to their, their piece and be heard. Yes, have your time to fully, passionately, authentically express what, what's going on for you, and then let your thought process go and really open to genuinely hearing the other person. And I think if that can happen, then usually there's a shift also in the, the emotional charge where the person, they'll feel the relief of having released their expression, and then they'll be a little more calm, and they can really hear the other person, and they might start to see their perspective or see ways that actually they both care deeply about the same thing. They're maybe just coming at it from different ways and and eat connection. If a dog wants my affection, I'll know it. 
The dog's jumping on me, rolling onto his back so I can scratch his belly, forcibly cuddling up while I'm trying to work. I know he wants some affection, but humans can be complicated. In story, as in life, our motives can be hard to know. Someone may be furious with me, pushing me away, and all because they want my support but are afraid to ask because I might say no. I may try to rise to a powerful corporate or governmental position all because I don't want to feel unsafe, out of control, vulnerable. And yet, if at some point in my life I find myself in a safe, accepting circle of people, then after some time I may be able to let go and open to that acceptance and open to what's really going on inside myself. You know that adage of where our attention goes, energy flows. When we have people listening or witnessing to us share song or story, there's suddenly more energy available to to put into that expression because of the energy of people's attention and presence. There's something about other people's attentiveness and presence that gives us more more capacity to bring out of the the inanimate ether into form in our awareness. I've witnessed conflict get resolved very simply and very easily. There was this consistent container on a weekly basis. Everyone living on this, this land together knew that every Wednesday evening for only an hour and a half, they were all expected to come and gather in circle. And everyone had an opportunity to share something. It wasn't mandatory, but it was the space that if you had something to share, whether it was something difficult or something joyous that you wanted to celebrate, this was the time to step up and share. And what was really potent about it is that everyone would gather in circle, sitting down, and that way it was your turn to share, you would stand up and take the center of the circle. And it made people really like, oh, wow, I have everyone's attention right now. What do I really want to share in this this special setting. And I witnessed a, a situation where two people had had a conflict over, seemed silly, mistaken sheets or something, laundry kind of thing. But two people got quite worked up and upset about it. And, you know, both thinking, of course, that their perspective was right and really frustrated that the other person didn't see it or get it. But what happened was the first person with the conflict got up and shared their piece. And in there was an, an important parameter put in this sharing circle is that we needed to speak from our perspective. There's no tolerance for blaming, like, you did this. You know, and rather that person got up, even though the other person they had a conflict with was there in the circle, they just spoke to the group. They said, when so-and-so did this, I felt this. They just shared their very personal experience without getting into any of that blame and attack. And it was really beautiful to watch the first person share their story, their experience of this conflict, and then be done. And also in this circle, the other parameter was there would be no feedback or talk back or response. It was just like, you share your piece, you know, a moment of silence is heard, 
and you know on to the next and so of course the second person hearing the first person share their piece was like well i i gotta share my side of the story too and they get up and they share their perspective and it was done they they were hugging after that they were at peace because they had already had the argument so maybe they had had a chance to calm down and then they were feeling the the potency of their community's attention and recognizing that when they started to talk if they were to be in a very blaming judgmental type attitude it would be evident and like oh how do i actually speak this just from my perspective and and allow space for you know their the other person's validity of of their perspective as well they just needed the the space to be held for them to be heard and witnessed by their community and then they could resolve it themselves now i get that story is meant to represent life and so stories can have a lot of bickering but story also opens up portals into what could be examples of personal expressions what humans can be what other beings can be that we're connected with expressions and interactions ways of being with each other that i might not have learned in my own life and when i see characters navigating difficult inner and outer trials with respect for each other i'm interested fascinated i can learn from this when i see groups of people with nuanced mature and maturing relations this helps me in my own life there's this shared understanding that is like okay i know that i'm activated that means it's my shadow projection like it's my stuff like it's, it's it's not your fault that i'm angry that's for me to 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 deal with and by you staying in this with me this is really doing me a service to to flush it out to understand what's beneath this anger so i can have a deeper self-awareness i love this quote from carl jung that says everything that irritates us about others has so much to teach us about ourselves there's a lot of talk about shadow and projection shadow being things that we hide repress or deny about ourselves they get kind of hidden away behind us in our shadow but what happens when we repress things into shadow they start to come out sideways they come out unconsciously and so often we will see these same qualities in other people and we'll get irritated by them because we've repressed them in ourselves and that's really what we're fighting with it's like oh i see that in this other person and i don't like that and i want to fix it or stop it in them and really that's a, an unconscious yearning to make peace with it in ourselves and so with people who have this shared understanding i've been able to have success in arguments and we both recognize that okay we're triggered right now there's shadow here and we can we both know that we have the we have this understanding so we're not trying to blame and shame and really take the other person down it's like we're getting into the ring for some sparring that's going to help uh bring more of it into our conscious awareness i know that this shadow and i'm projecting and this is what i'm feeling right now like <laughs> right. you're being a jerk and because you did this and this and this and then i go oh and where do i do those things Oh, okay. there's always some hard pill to swallow, isn't there? Why I do that? Oh, I didn't want to think that way about myself. Oh, but it's mm-hmm. true. 
And now we're going to get into something that's fundamental to both stories and relationships, which is an understanding of different aspects of one's self. As we have our outer relations with different kinds of people, we also have our inner relations with different aspects of ourselves, outer village and inner village, if you will, inner child, archetypes like hero, ruler, lover, servant, craftsperson, hunter, ascetic, sage, mother, father, sister, brother, some expressed perhaps in our lives more than others. Being in relation with these has helped me to be in good relation with a wider range of people and to write a wider range of characters. It's quite profound metaphysically, this correspondence between inner and outer, as within, so without. And as I have made better relations with parts of myself, I do find that my relations with other kinds of people improves. And another layer that's allowed me to have great success in communicating about stuff like this is looking at myself as, as parts, like different aspects of self. And there's maybe aspects of myself that are stuck in the past from difficult experiences that I haven't been able to reconcile or make peace with. So there's a part of me that is still hanging on to this old frustration and that every time I think about it, it's like, oh, I can get angry again or I can feel the sadness again. By calling it a part, it helps me disidentify from it and access more of that higher consciousness that can observe and go, oh, I've got this part, like, like a child who's, you know, who's sad, who's hurt. And it really, that part just needs some attention, needs some compassion, needs some support so that it can resolve this difficult experience that it's been holding onto from the past. And so in conversation with a close friend who has this approach as well, we can be like, oh, I've got a part that's really angry at you right now because you did this and this. But I can see, oh, that part is really a younger part that was hurt by his brother who did a similar thing. And you're just reminding us of that situation. So being able to have that dialogue helps it be accepted and made peace with. It's neat. It's like that part, which maybe is, is causing a problem in my inner world. It's taking energy with this upset when it is brought to attention and it's named and acknowledged and accepted, it will like transform to stop drawing energy, it now has support and energy to give. Something has been cleared, so now I have more energy available for my present moment. It's really interesting. It makes me think of the inner village and the outer village, <laughs> in the sense that these parts are a bit like an inner village, isn't it? You got different children in there, and you got elders in there, and you got different points of view, different aspects of the self, and then how that's relating with the inner village of others. It's a hologram of personhood. I invite you now to spin a story with different aspects of yourself. Thinking back, perhaps over the last week or so, and the different moods you've gone through on the different days, the different parts of yourself being expressed in work, 
personal connections, creativity, despair, happiness. Looking back in these different ways you've expressed yourself, perhaps in the last week, you might pluck out a couple characters. This means a simplification of yourself, just taking that aspect and making it into a character, the hardworking one, perhaps, the wounded, lonely one, the expressive, creative one, the diligent craftsperson. Now you might take a notebook and write down some ideas and work on this, or if you're walking or driving, you could just speak this aloud or even think it in your mind. Consider brainstorming how might these two or three characters that you've picked out, how might they interact? What kind of conversation might they have? What do they stand for? Go ahead and speak for one of them and then speak for the other. Given the content now of their conversation, reflecting on what you've come up with, what place might they be? Are they on a train? in an open grassland, in a desert, in an airplane, on another planet? What place fits the kind of conversation that they're having? Give it a setting. And what do they look like? They don't have to look anything like you. They can be dressed up according to their nature or hiding their nature contrary to it. What's their face look like? Their hat, if they have one, their outfit... What's their walking style? And if these characters have some ground that they share, what might that ground be? What might they do together? Or do they have different missions? You're free to pause me and explore this before continuing. And now, for the main event in our show today, we step out from the human village and into the wider Earth community. Or rather, we step with the human village into the wider Earth community. This really means understanding community in a broader way, not just humans with shared interest, but beings with shared interest on our planet It's an old idea in land-based cultures that we humans are but one nation among many, and we are not necessarily the most senior or most important. Yet this way of relating has been assaulted by another pattern, that of empire, of power over the land, of monoculture and low-context, physically abstracted thinking. Be that as it may, relations with the earth can be rekindled by anyone, anywhere, as shown by our next guest, who runs a wilderness awareness school on Vancouver Island in what's known as Canada, Coast Salish Territory. His is a story of incremental and highly personal movement in cultural regeneration. 
My name is Cass, Caster Reed, and I run a wilderness school here in the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island. We're based between the Comox Valley and Gabriola Island. We offer homeschooling programs on the land, basically, in a land-based setting. The context of our, of our work is attending to decolonization, attending to this particular cultural moment of, of biosphere collapse and just the kind of fragmentation of true cultures of place and truly sustainable cultures. So a particular part of our work is oriented to mythology, certainly in our work with adults, that's far more prominent. Engaging mythology and stories really as a deeper ground of culture and cultural understandings and cultural models, really, because these old stories hold in them these structures of relationship between humans, but also between humans and the land, and also between humans and their various deities or divine forces, which you can talk about in religious terms or spiritual terms or scientific terms, actually. You know, ultimately, it's about engaging these mysteries and being in relationship with those mysteries in such a way that continues to feed us and keep us alive and everything else, you know, given our history as the custodial species around here. I want to ask you about your work and maybe a bit about John Young, the Eight Shields model, draw you to that, and about the kind of things you do with the kids and with the adults out there in the forests of... Vancouver Island, especially, and Gabriola, and this, this Salish Sea, this wondrous Salish Sea ecosystem in which we find ourselves, this absolute miracle of an ecosystem. What do those practices look like? You know, you've got kids who are just from modern culture, they're going to school and all, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And you bring them into the forest. I've gone on a, a camp with you, I should say, for the listeners, gotten a bit of a sense of, of how things roll. And, you know, it doesn't feel like a hardcore initiation into indigenous ways. It's quite gentle, actually, and playful, I would say. I just invite you to, to speak about that in this in this context. Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, maybe I can tell you a little bit about the camp we just did last week, which is an overnight camp up in Strathcona, a bunch of 20 kids up there. And really what we see as the core of this indigenous human relationship to the land and the cosmos is understanding that it's entirely reciprocal, like entirely reciprocal. So we really will only get what we give. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. We'll always get more than we give. But if we do not give, we will not be upheld in full health. You know, there'll be, there'll have to be a reckoning and that might take a hundred years or a thousand or whatever it is, but there will be a reckoning. So really, if we can attend to that reciprocity, following the examples in older cultures and in our own lineages and in these old stories, you know, we can actually enter into a different experience of what it's like to be here, you know? So what we did last week was, you know, we're up in this beautiful place by a lake close to a creek with a beautiful waterfall. Last year we were up there and we, and we brought the kids on a kind of a bit of a, a bit of a ceremonial engagement with the waters and so this year we were returning and we wanted to ceremonially engage with the land. We plan these camps very much on a feeling basis, like what stories are in our life right now? What are we feeling right now? And recently I have been yeah, lucky enough to, to begin a, a friendship relationship with an elder around here, a local elder who's from the Pentlatch clan, who this is the original territory of the Pentlatch 
and Ayuksin. Oh, he's actually from Ayuksin clan. I believe he has relatives in the Penach clans. He's a local elder, and I was telling him about what we do, and he's excited about what we do, and he's kind of given his blessing to our work, and we were coordinating with him for this camp, and he was, you know, suggesting a local story we could use and offering us names in the indigenous language that we could use, you know, to offer the kids as a way to just bring them deeper into relationship with the ecosystem there, you know, kind of having that sort of nature name for you to work with, it's a personal relationship, but also to to engage the sounds of the indigenous languages, literally speak the language of the place, you know, experience being in that sonic reciprocity with the place is another level of that. So we built the week towards a ceremony. And so that involved hearing some big stories. You know, this one story of Mink, or Born to be the Sun, which is his, the translation of his name in several coastal languages. I mean, the Mink story is, is kind of about a young person coming of age, following his longing to know his father. Which It's a story about what, what, what Wedlady, this elder, said. It's about learning to bring color to the world after your initiation, becoming an adult. Like, what can you bring? What can we bring into the world? You know, that's the story of becoming an adult, really entering this stage of service where the world has raised us, not just our family, not just our community, not just the animals we eat, not just our land base, the world, you know, the cosmos. And so then how do we actually bring color into the world? And in this story, it uses the sun to describe how we're all divine in some way and also how we all go through this journey of longing and meeting our edges and meeting our crises and basically coming into balance with those energies and learning who we are. And ultimately, like, remembering that we're human as well as divine. And there's a part in that story where Mink, who longs to be a hunter, because he's a young man in this, in this tribe, and he used his bow and arrow to fire at the morning star to make a, to make a bridge up to the sky world. And then you know, we heard another story, Stephanie, the other co-director of Fiana, she's connected to a Mayan lineage, Sutuhil Mayan lineage through Martin Pertel, who was her teacher for many years. So she shared a story from that tradition, also about a hunter who follows basically his longings for cultural acceptance, to be accepted in the community. He's an orphan, orphan hunter. Uh, well, he's an orphan. He longs to be a hunter because they're respected in the community. And he puts together his raggedy bow and his raggedy arrow and goes out on his own try to be a hunter and he ends up pursuing that longing into a relationship with the divine of a fairly arduous and eventful courtship with the divine the the water-skirted beauty as she's named in that story and and her parents the the god of the mountain and grandmother growth so these are the forces of life you know water and growth and the mountain and these divine energies and what they you know what they require of this young man in his courtship of their daughter and how they try to actually kill him because he's just a stinky human and like their daughter is a divine water being, you know, God. It, it also tells the story of our just heartbreaking and beautiful human journey into our fullness, you know, which is not just human, but it is also divine with these incredible capacities to tend the world in a way that is distinct from, from many other species so you know in terms of exploring these stories we're sort of like just inviting the kids into a deeper complex embrace of the world and humanity and we're playing lots of games and singing lots of songs and we're wandering on the land as well and dipping in the lake and you know we're cooking together and eating together and we're sitting around the fire each night for these stories and then we're kind of working towards through the week, going for a, for a big wonder on the land. We take one big day kind of heading up the mountain and, and we're looking for, for resources, you know, materials to harvest and make bows and arrows. So we focus this week on, on a discussion around hunting cultures 
as as demonstrated in these stories, is a bow and arrow or a hunting weapon actually also becoming really a spiritual guide into relationship, into the deepest sense of reciprocity with the land. And actually, this notion of the prey animal being our beloved, you know, really a courtship, whereby we are intense longing for that species. And yes, that food, that nourishment is really a spiritual longing for union as well as as this need to feed from the world. So working with that sense of reciprocity and that reframing of like, oh, hunting, it's not actually dominating. It's, it's actually like being in deep reciprocity. We invited the kids to collect some materials to, to fashion a bow and arrow. And, and, you know, we crafted for a day on these bows and arrows. And then that night we kind of did a what we call a drum stalk with them. So at dusk we put blindfolds on them and just stick them out in the forest and then someone playing a drum down by the lake. And they have to find their way over, you know, for some of them it takes 15 minutes or 20 minutes to kind of like get through the forest and push through the willows and get down the rocks and, you know, they're carrying their bow and and get to the side of the lake and then it's dusk, the sunset, and we take their blindfolds off and, we, you know, we've, we've kind of primed it beforehand that like this is a moment to make an offering of that arrow and, and shoot the arrow out onto the land or into the lake. And this is a tradition that there's lots of provenance for, like arrows as a as an offering um, in many cultures, but also arrows as representing destiny. And in many European stories, it's an arrow that's fired out initially for the young person to go out and follow the arrow to follow their destiny. And, you know, they worked, these arrows were, we were like flaking the stone tips and binding them onto these, these shafts of very hard wood that we had harvested and using feathers we had harvested or leaves for fletching you know, working on cordage to make the bow string. So it's working with our hands is this embodied way of integrating the stories and integrating this reciprocal relationship with the land because we're taking materials from the land to then fashion beauty, beautiful things with them and offer them back. So, yeah, we invited these kids to fire their arrow out into the water as we sang them a song and, and to allow that arrow to be whatever they want. Maybe it's gratitude. Maybe it's just acknowledging the beauty of this place. Maybe it is a prayer or a petition for something. Maybe it is just joy at being out here for a week on the land with the water and the stars and the sunset and your friends. You know, really keeping it open for it to mean anything, anything it can to them or anything they want it to. But opening the doorway for some kind of symbolic experience, some kind of ceremonial experience and deeper relationship critically. And then a part of that is, of course, welcoming their stories afterwards. So the next day, hearing from everyone and what it was like for them and you know, we invited them to sleep under the stars if they wanted to meet their edge in that way, have a deeper embrace of this place. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how we sort of approach these deeper immersion kind of camps is working up, working around this central cultural relationship of reciprocity or community relation, community and personal relationship of reciprocity um, through offerings and through just letting the land be alive and dynamic and imbued with divine energies and communicating to us the whole time. And that really is a kind of, is just a deeper take on what Dongyang and Eight Shields uh, are doing in the peyote mentoring movement, which is really engaging the land and engaging our senses and using play and games and storytelling and song and these different cultural, you could say, mechanisms or these different cultural ways of actually supporting deep connection to place. And so these kids, you know, they, they gain a deeper connection with their senses, with their bodies, with the place, 
as this very complex system of lives, system of other lives, you know, the mink or the osprey and the bald eagle and the fir tree and the, the wild strawberry and the insect, but like so much, so much that it can, it can be just phenomenal when you really realize just on the ecolo ecological level, just how much is going on in a single place, you know, and how much we impact and how much is impacted by us you know it's, it's I mean, that in itself is such a huge revelation and then you introduce some of the just suggestions of these deeper layers like well there's there's an energetic layer as well there's an emotional layer as well like we're actually an emotional kind of like exchange with this place and there's a spiritual layer too and then these stories are talking about a relationship across time with place you know and our ancestors and the whole direction of the cosmos and i mean it just it becomes too much to understand and really you just end up feeling it all that's the feeling of being fully alive i think it leads right into what i'd like to discuss and hear from you about and it is specifically about the greater global community in in the sense of not just humans and also about how human communities can foster that larger connection. You're doing work with kids and adults to help foster that. So I'm curious about your, your personal journey of, of coming into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was about 23 from the UK, <laughs> after studying at university and, you know, having a fairly standard mainstream middle class upbringing and experience... I took off to the Peruvian Amazon. Purely because I was feeling something of a, of a malaise, personal and cultural. I just needed something different. You know, I came from a kind of politically active, environmentalist, socially aware circle of educated middle class people. So that impulse to be useful was there, that kind of vocational impulse. But yeah, the context just did not have me jazzed. <laughs> I didn't want to do a master's. I didn't, I didn't want another debt with the student debt. You know, I realized like, oh, I've got to this point where I've done the studies and I've kind of followed the steps, gone through the education. And it's like, I don't actually feel like I have a clue <laughs> yet. As part of a kind of year after studying of, of kind of doing volunteer work here and there and squatting and being kind of politically radical in my own way, trying to live into some kind of vision, I guess, some kind of like bigger meaning. I decided to head to the Amazon based on a conversation with a friend who was a biology student who asked me, do you want to go to the most beautiful place in the world? <laughs> it lit up my soul, really, in a way that I couldn't really contain essentially. So I took off on a one-way ticket and I was working in conservation settings in Central America and South America and just living full-time in the forest in these bush camps. You know, initially it was this research center. Later it was a very rudimentary bush camp in the Pacific coastal rainforest of Costa Rica in the Ecuadorian Amazon and spending time in very remote indigenous communities. I just got completely hooked on this experience of wilderness and indigenous perspectives because initially there I was working with scientists and local indigenous guides and it became a real intrigue for me just how different their understandings were of, of this forest and 
and how different the implications of their understandings were. The indigenous guys who were my friends and guides to the tours sort of initiated me into this far more mystical and humble and rich relationship with the land, which of course included all of these other layers of knowledge. I became very intrigued between this gap, between these two worldviews or knowledge systems. And I was particularly engaged with storytelling traditions. But later when I spent quite extensive time in very remote tribal communities, you know, I was really exposed to what an indigenous lifestyle is like, hunting and fishing, traditional medicine, the roads, experiencing a completely responsive landscape, a landscape that was utterly responsive on every level to the community, to human intention and, and ceremony and things like this. I mean, I saw some really crazy things in there that simply can't be explained within the Western paradigm. And, and it kind of shattered my worldview, shattered my political views. That whole experience of my life just completely turned everything upside down in terms of what I understood about myself and the world. And it ripped open these radical political inclinations that I realized in hindsight were all just these attempts to have some kind of purpose and to belong to a group of meaningful people who were useful. Later, I worked in indigenous educational projects up in the north of Canada and was lucky enough to spend time with lots of elders and communities up there out on the land, just really studying personally what this particular cultural relationship is or a community relationship really to a land base to place you know and how actually the reciprocity between place and a community is is infinitely complex and there's really no limits to it you know in terms of physical resources of course but then emotional resources spiritual resources the whole human experience basically is shaped by that relationship with place, not just by the place, but actually by that relationship with place, including all the intentions and prayers and ceremonies and the dreams that come back from that or the guidance. I mean, it's just fascinating to reflect on our shared heritage as peoples from different places across the earth, where in every one of those places, our ancestors had this incredibly deep reciprocal conversation happening with their territories in such a way that it actually fed them and kept them alive. So it's becoming clear that, oh, the style of relationship we have with the landscape, the nature of our relationships actually shapes us. I want to hold on this, this vision. I'm meeting all my needs along with the people physically around me, with the land with whom we live. No shipping in grains from elsewhere, no phones, internet, radio, just the stories we share among each other, stories and songs relating us with the very beings, the plants and animals, elemental spirits, who surround us, who precede us. I'm living as we grew up as a species. I'm considering how these relations shape me, how the changing seasons of this place mold me, the rain, the dry, the cold, the heat, 
how the shapes of the hills that I behold affect the curves of my own thoughts in my mindscape, how the burrowing creatures bring my imagination down with them into the soil, how the rivers cleanse the woolly cotton thoughts from my mind, how the falcon flying above carries my mind along with key, allowing me to see myself and the land from above. The falcon, the falcon is my bird, is my bird. The falcon, the falcon is my bird, is my bird. My eyes are gifted. The falcon is my bird. My eyes are gifted. Falcon is my bird, and whom my eyes are gifted with unbounded vision. In whom my eyes are gifted, the falcon is my bird with unbounded vision. My eyes to find, growing my eyes to growing my eyes to find. A distant island, the falcon is my bird. Growing a distant island, the falcon is my bird. Showing me, showing me invisible air. Showing me, showing me invisible air. Showing me. By how you twitch like paper, showing me. By how you twitch like paper in currents in the ocean of sky. Earlier on, Che Berriot was describing conflict resolution based on deep empathy and awareness of different aspects of ourselves. Here we can see that this extends to other species as well. Owl, wolf, cedar, mushroom, all are within me, my ancestors. We have much common ground in our bodies and our consciousness. It's not poetic exaggeration to say that we're part of the same community. And yet, due to terrible twists of history... Who knows whether they were necessary in some way. Many of us didn't grow up with such an intimate connection with land, though we may have gotten it in glimpses. I grew up mainly in a city where the shapes of residential blocks and rows of trees by the side of the road shaped my awareness. Where the mountains and grasslands were places to visit, places of wonder but not places to dwell in and depend upon. Aye, there's the rub, here's the hard question. How might a person like myself, like many of us, with ancestral deep land connections which have largely been lost, now orphaned in many ways, culturally due to many disruptions and part of orphaning and disrupting others, how might a person like I repair my relations with land and with this very land where I now find myself. Being a person who is from the West, an Anglo-speaking white male with a heap of privilege, 
including the privilege of actually having these experiences. And yeah, trying to trying to be a part of the 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 emergence of just how this global culture right now might find its way into a new and more stable way of relationship with the land base and therefore with you know the, the global ecosystem and the global human community i mean when you're speaking about it, it really sounds like that like to acknowledge that yes i am in an intimate relationship with this land you know i mean that's that's a big acknowledgement isn't it all these different beings on the land and what's my relationship with them you know what what is going back and forth between us and it's it's kind of vulnerable isn't it and perhaps that's some of the difficulty of coming into it is coming into a landscape just to use resources i can be ironclad i can be untouched supposedly like you described that experience of kind of being broken open and having all your views questioned and things that you really held to be important shown as being pretty superficial really and you can just let them go in the face of that which is deeper and more real <laughs> i wonder if you could speak a bit more about about that worldview that intimacy and also about your own journey of entering into that like you say and i think for many people from modernity and of course having your own ancestors who had intimate connection with the land everybody does but coming from that worldview and being exposed to cultures that maintain intimate relationship with the land and then what do i do about that you know what, what what's that for me i wasn't born in the amazon i wasn't born with the inuit so i'm curious to hear about your own journey of approaching that intimacy and yeah. about the specific places that you've approached that intimacy with as well mm -hmm. yeah well i guess i would say that yeah it's a dangerous thing <laughs> being a young privileged person kind of let loose on the world i mean what a blessing to first of all be alive second of all like have the option to actually go somewhere else outside of your culture and have a different experience of things and certainly only by having access to you know work in western europe and the use of english etc was able to do that but yeah i would say that me going finding myself in the amazon and finding myself on this quest to learn from indigenous cultures had more than a small dose of youthful ignorance naivety projection idealization romanticization i was going there for my experience really i was full of this longing you know and i felt like it could be attended to there somehow and i i do i would say that i believe that's that's the way that a youthful psyche moves out into the world to meet its edges and learn about things but i'm just putting this within the context of our history and our responsibilities today so yeah i would say i i found just the deepest intimacy with the land you know particularly in the amazon and particularly in these achuar communities 
where I spent time really embedded in an indigenous setting. I was the only white person there. You know, when I was working on these other conservation projects or in research centers, you know, I would meet other Western people day to day and I'd be talking English and I'd be hanging out with my indigenous guide buddies as well and spending a lot of time on the land with them. So it was kind of in these two worlds. And then when I spent time with the Atuar, I was there initially for like five months of these small flying communities and just, you know, just me. That was it. <laughs> and it's easy to lose context that way, especially if you have no guides or mentors or reference for actually what's happening to you and why you're having such intense experiences and why you feel like they're so important, but actually without necessarily the language or the framework to properly understand them. I mean, just learning to follow your intuition on the land. I mean, learning to follow your intuition in life, learning to truly navigate, you know, from your deepest sense of knowing. And when you're in a place that follows tribal law and natural law, you really have to. What could I say? I mean, a little story from from being on the land was down there was, for instance, in the Atchua culture, they believe that these big blue morpho butterflies, which are these huge huge blue butterflies at least six to eight inches wingspan just flutter through the forest and they have this flash of blue azure blue across the back of their wings and so you see them dancing particularly over waterways or through these natural openings in the forest like through trails typically you see them on on their own very hard to approach any butterflies they never land near you you can never catch them they just dance dance through and the Achuar believe that the blue morpho carries one of the four souls that leaves a human body when someone dies so when i began to learn about that that was just so beautiful to me because yeah being on the land in such an intense environment it just made sense to me that everything was there like across time across space when someone dies they're still around and you go into this mysterious mysterious forest where you can turn a corner and the most unexpected things can happen or can be can be right there in the trail and you go back the next day and they're disappeared or you're hearing sounds you've never heard before. I mean, just, you know, a million different mysteries. So when I when I learned about this particular belief of the Achua, and I, I had recently lost in that previous year my grandmother. I had been in the jungle for a year and a half. I had come out just because I felt like it was time to be at home for a bit. And a couple months later, my grandmother died. It was a very heavy death for my family and for me. And then six months after that, my mother's sister, her very dear middle sister who had a good hand in raising her and she was very close to died of cancer after a long period of degrading health and and that was so sad for my mother and so sad for me it's the first time I've really seen someone on their deathbed and, and you know had a conversation with her about dying and I was leaving she was literally on the edge and she knew I was leaving in the next days and she gave me this amazing blessing and you know I told her that I would find her find her out there in the world and I'd, and I'd feel her out there and that like I would carry her story and carry her relationship with me and so as I catapulted myself off to the Amazon this whole period of my life which I view as a kind of soul descent into the underworld and just being dismembered and devoured and, and you know having these intense emotional connections and relationships and discovering so much and there's so much longing there but so much grief as well because when you're on the move you have to leave so much behind every step of the way I went out to this to these deep Amazon communities again, showing up thinking like, okay, this is this is a semi-formal arrangement, you know, supposed to be supporting them in their ecotourism projects, 
and 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 teaching some English to some of the young people because they want to, you know, they want their guides to speak English. But ultimately, I'm finding myself in a very foreign place and it's very foreign experience, far from my family, feeling all of this family grief, unable to communicate with them, getting kind of to the end of my tether, like just feeling so lonely and so confused. So I took a walk this one day when I was having a particularly heavy day with with this grief and this loneliness. I took a walk down this trail by the river. I was thinking about my grandmother. One of these blue morpho butterflies flew up and landed right beside me on the trail. And, you know, what was on my mind at the moment was my grandmother. So caught in this kind of classic tension of like, well, do I believe it? Do I not? Do I allow it to be true so that I can actually enter into deeper relationship with what is on offer? Or do I, in a possessive way, have to have a final understanding and a final grasp of what's happening? So I, I'm like, oh, grandma, you know, Mapa is what we called her. I'm like, and then I'm kind of like, if this is you, where's Dill, who is my auntie? You know, and then you're like, oh, well, if you're my dead grandmother, like, where's my auntie? Immediately, another butterfly flutters down the trail and lands right on another leaf on exactly the other side of me. On the left and the right, I have these two huge blue morphos. And they're sitting right there and answering my question. Am I really here? Am I really on a journey right now is this useful am i learning you know is this real basically you know my longing is it real my intuitions that that these experiences are guiding me is it real so that was just one of a thousand experiences that i could recount that you know are so humbling and and require some of that cultural context you know that i had learned in that place that's the way things work in that place and require me to be emotionally present with myself and require me to have an open mind and require me to also take a walk by the river when I'm feeling heavy or, 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 or you know, full of grief. So these kinds of experiences really led me to embrace just an intimacy with the landscape and particularly with the cultural context of that place, you know, because that's the mind that's at work there. And remember, the cultural context comes from the place, not the other way around. In any indigenous context, that's how it works. You know, in the Western context, it's the other way around. We impose our mind, our paradigm on the place. But, yeah, through these experiences, you know, of, of coming into a deep kind of intimacy with the land and a certain kind of cultural intimacy, you know, I, I made good friends there. I became, became for many years an assistant and interpreter to a traditional medicine person. And we worked for several years raising money for land defense, like recovering sacred sites in his territory. I had lots of lots of intimacy with his tradition, particularly in his stories and his community and his territory. But I, there came a point where I realized, like, yeah, I'm not an indigenous person to the Amazon. I can't stay here and just have a life and, you know, marry into the tribe, and, you know, which is at some point what I wanted to do in my very naive kind of fantasies. That's just not gonna work <laughs> and in the small ways that i kind of tried felt my way into that it things hit crisis mode pretty quick and then there's a, you know there was a very deep journey of certain dreams and other teachers and mentorship you know when i kind of decided to come to canada and start working in the sort of nature connection field here as a way to try to bridge actually my own experience as a way to personally come back and start to integrate some of those experiences. You know, I found a field in which I could work where I would be bridging those kind of contexts and those kind of experiences for others. 
as a part of that whole integration, I, you know, I realized like this was all guiding me back to my own indigenous heritage, which is Irish, Scottish for the most part, there's some English in there, but essentially Celtic. side Burmese, far east of Asia, Southeast Asia, Burma being next to Thailand, which actually also has, you know, that's been, a, that's been an area of massive movement of people for thousands of years. So there's actually a lot of North Indian and Chinese in that lineage, which on reflection after years now of learning about therapeutic modalities in this culture, you know, particularly somatic modalities and working with psychedelics as a way to access trauma and experience it. You know, this, this was a fascinating journey in terms of complementing what I had experienced in the traditional medicine setting. I started to experience like, wow, that whole tropical kind of that longing I had for the tropics and for the forest environments and particularly to ally to, to indigenous causes and to, to challenge the colonial forces really is revisiting the experience of my grandfather who had to escape Burma. When my mother was four years old with his family because of the fallout of the British regime and they pulled out and there was just all of this fragmentation and the conflict and, and my grandfather moved to England with his family and raised his girls speaking English and didn't want them to identify as Burmese in any way, didn't speak Burmese to them, didn't want them to suffer the racism that he was suffering in the country, just had to forget it all, never saw his family again. experience my particular longings and, and, and forays into that political territory and that particular tropical geography as connected to his experience. And all of these, these kind of very important relationships in my life now, spiritual relationships, you know, relationships with place, but also relationships with different forces like water or the feminine, or mammals, or just with plants and medicines, or with the sky, sky energy. These core relationships, what I'm realizing, are guiding me not to, I mean, the, the first step was like, oh, I want to be an indigenous person and experience and be in relationship with all of this in this intense way. But actually, you know, the real responsibility is in being the person I am, a Western person who speaks English, who is a white, has a white male body and all this privilege, like be in that experience fully and use it to be useful basically to other people like me, but also as some kind of node of, of emergent kind of transformation. Or I mean, I'm, I'm a bit wary of all that language because it's just, it gets a little bit floaty at some point and ungrounded. But, but really I experienced this huge amount of grief when I moved back to Canada and finally decided to stay here and, you know, let go of this dream to live in the Amazon or to live up north, you know, for a while I was just falling in love with indigenous woman after indigenous woman, you know, projecting this sense of true indigenous belonging onto them that I was clearly seeking for myself needed, you know, my own indigenous soul. And so 
when I realized that and started inquiring into my Irish lineage and into Irish mythology, for which there is lots of material. For those of us with, with Gaelic heritage, Irish, Scottish, English, Celtic, down through the Gaulish, Gaulish France and into Spain, all of this Celtic heritage, there's actually a lot of documented mythologies, stories, cultural ways. You know, there's a lot of material for us to draw on. And my sense is that the barrier to really reclaiming a lot of that and upholding a sense of indigenous responsibility to how we live our lives in a certain place. The barrier is all of this grief, because I had my own experience of engaging the griefs of my grandfather and then going through the Irish lineage and Scottish, learning about the the colonial history there and just what happened to the Gaelic people in the last 200 years is is as shocking as what happened over here. You know, it's the same patterns that have played out now for thousands of years. Displacement of people, dispossession of their lands, appropriation of their lands, resources, knowledge, and identities. You know, there's, you see this cycle of like obliterating the indigenous culture and then romanticizing everything that they symbolize to us because we're unable to fully engage the pain of that trauma of inflicting it on others and then what's triggered in ourselves of like we actually in our lineages we've all experienced that now for like 10,000 years I mean you could pick different figures out of the air but it's certainly been a long time that that's been happening all the way from from the various imperial experiments in the Far East you know sweeping across Europe and, and into the Americas Pattern of Empire Moving through history Imprinted on disparate times It's one way we've organized We've also lived simpler ways Without so much control Tribes and villages Peaceful goals Pattern of horse and blade Growing to airborne flame Sinking to trench lost grave Which nation is to blame? We can find simpler days Children can grow old in ages and stages Help to unfold Hey, hey, hey I see a time Ways are held high eh, 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 when the soil of the ground is as holy as the sky in which she spins with us upon her, and we know. Healing life rich weave Binding, mending so many rifts to grieve Children's children need tending Songs of hope, hope and, and toil Lost words newly spoken Fingers wet with soil Relations reawoken Hey, hey I see a time when earthly ways are held high. Hey, hey, hey. 
the soil of the ground is as holy as the sky in which she spins with us upon her in which she spins with us upon her in which she spins 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 with us upon her and we know I would say that intimacy has led me back to a necessary engagement of intimacy with the grief in my own lineages, the displacement there, and pass, being in relationship with that grief to really connect with my own indigenous soul, my own sense of indigenous belonging here on the planet. I find myself living in Canada, but I find myself in, in open conversation with the indigenous communities of this place, with elders, with a commitment to to being here in a good way with a commitment to acknowledging the history, not just acknowledging the history, but actually processing the history together, not leaving that up to the indigenous people, but actually being in my own experience of processing that same colonial grief and trauma that happened in my lineages several hundred years ago. And then that my ancestors brought here and that I have brought here as well. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I, that I live without colonial bias or without, imperial kind of implications to my presence here you know just by being a part of the capitalist economy i am perpetrating and perpetuating certain violences on this land and other lands and that plays into these these cultural dynamics whereby indigenous people are oppressed and, and dispossessed and dismissed and, and, and distorted in an ongoing trauma but the importance is to be engaged you know, the importance is to be in conversation with that, in relationship with that, and not trying to escape the tensions of that. I, see, I feel like I see this a lot with people trying to, like, oh, I don't want to culturally appropriate, and so should I sing this song or not? Well, you know, my response to that is like, I can't tell you that. You know, go to the go to the person whose song it is, or the person who taught you that song, or the culture whose song it is. Learn about the context in which it's used. Assess whether you think this is an appropriate context. Make your offerings in some way feed that tradition. And most of all, don't try to escape the complexity of this question of whether you can be in good relationship with the immense responsibility and privilege that it is to have access to cultural ways of honoring a single moment in time or a place or a ceremony that you want to enact. Oh, get rid of the history. Just get rid of the complexity. Like, let's get rid of, let's, can't we just all get along? When actually being in dynamic relationship with place and time and our responsibilities as a community, as an individual, as a species, that was the whole thing always of us being here as an individual or as a community or as a species. It's like we have to be responsive to the land, to the weather, to the season, to the divine energies. You know, we have to be in constant conversation with those complex tensions and they're expressing themselves through dreams and through intuitions and through, you know, all these other things. And now we have these more complex human systems with kind of politics and government and, you know, these different levels of decision making. But ultimately, we have to be in that dynamic and complex relationship where we hold, where we can hold all these tensions. You know, it's about our resilience. And one thing I've learned from spending time with, with indigenous people is that if we are, if we are in relationship with those complexities and those tensions, we become such resilient and 
really rich and useful and just interesting <laughs> people with stories, you know, and responsibilities and, and a certain kind of a humble countenance towards life and towards the bigger forces that we're always subject to. You know, this moment in the global culture where we're dominating everything, it's not going to last long. But yeah, a huge, a huge piece of this intimacy for me with these great blessings of being in an indigenous setting, it has led me back to a deeply personal sense of responsibility and commitment to identifying within my own lineage and being in relationship with those territories where I come from, even if I don't physically, I'm not physically able to spend time there, you know, like Burma, you know, I can rarely go there and I'm not going to go and live there, but to be engaged with the stories of that place and the story of that place that's in my body and in my lineage, then there are, there are teachings and there's energy and there's a life in that story to actually feed the way I, I make my presence in the world here where I live in Canada and all of those relationships with the people from here, with the community, with the families that I work with. So what's a critical part of that is the grief, you know, like grieving the tragedy of this history and the ongoing patterns of this history of just like, some strange dynamic whereby our own pain and trauma just, just stimulates us to dominate and oppress and externalize that, that violence that we've experienced somewhere along the line. It's just so sad, but there's nothing to really do about it than fully feel it. And if we can do that in community, we can do that in reference to, to these older cultural ways, because like, this was the marvel of, of these traditional cultural ways is they actually had ritual ceremony, you know, grieving rites, initiation rites. They had all of these intricate human, you could call them technologies for navigating through life, for actually producing fully responsible adult humans, for processing the inevitable challenges and griefs of, of being alive, and centrally for being in good relationship with the mysteries that feed us, and feeding them in return, this, this deepest sense of reciprocity, whereby we will only survive if the world survives, you know? And if we don't keep feeding the world, you know, the world's going to devour us eventually our immediate land base whether it dries up as a desert or floods you know so what felt to me like a cultural return realizing i really had to come back and and just be in western culture and find a way find my way to be here carrying all of those stories yeah that was that was an initiation into this kind of grief and the complex work of continuing to be in relationship you know growing my capacity to include the complexity like yeah i am a white privileged male and yeah i am in relationship with these mysteries and with these indigenous ways of being and yeah i don't feel totally comfortable with my presence here and the fact that with enough money i can just buy a piece of land and imagine that i own it in some abstract kind of way and yep, I do have a great respect for the First Nations here and I long to be in deeper relationship with them. And I'm so grateful for the relationships that I do have with them. And, you know, then, of course, then there's deeper complexity there. I don't want to project some kind of perfection onto the indigenous communities here. It's like they're all subject to these colonial systems and economies today as well. And they're struggling in their own ways. And ultimately, we're all here to be a human community that keeps this land alive, you know, and that keeps the world alive through ceremony. 
and therefore we hope in return to be kept alive not just kept alive but i mean that in the fullest sense to be kept fully alive in the potential that our that our species was given in the beginning as some stories say or that evolved through time as other stories say but what's for sure is as human beings we have the most immense capacities i mean just astounding capacities to tend to a place and to to feed a place and to feed this the mutual life-giving abundance that nature displays or of course as we all know these incredible capacities to manipulate and destroy all based on some abstract notion of possession and safety security that's the craziest thing it's like this is also we can somehow feel more secure and it's it's literally taking the ground out from underneath our feet yeah it's beautiful man that's beautiful thank you yeah there's there's a lot to sit with there Who, who am I? Who am I in this? What is, what is my part to play? And if I'm fully honest about my internal existence, what does that ask me to do? Coming back to Canada, which in some ways feels like a bit of a desert for some of those cultural practices, you know, in my own culture, it's like, well, you know, Where's the pilgrimage? <laughs> like, where, where's the pilgrimage? We're going camping, but where's the pilgrimage and the ceremonies and things like that? You found some work that is connected with that here, which is beautiful. And there are pioneers in modern Western culture who are grappling with these questions and considering how to proceed, like like John Young, like Bill Plotkin. A couple that come to mind. You were talking about the butterflies in the Amazon. I was thinking of Bill Plotka, and he talks about soul initiation. This perception of the beings around us, like butterflies and flowers and birds, as having significance for us internally. The questions that we're asking that there's a there's a resonance in the world with these questions, and and also about grief. Francis Weller. He was saying how grief is a gateway emotion, which really struck me. And this week I experienced quite a upsurge of grief, which I let come through some quite old grief. I did feel like it was a, like it's a gateway into deeper emotions. And of course it's so intense and it feels like grief is a destruction. Like, oh, I'm just going to be on the floor crying. Oh, I'm just going to be useless. I'm going to be suffering. Who wants that? But in truth, especially if it's held with a group and if it's, if it's done with some ceremony and intention and with some help, then it doesn't become a wallowing. It's very enlivening. And there's a risk to it. Like you talk about safety, it strikes me there's... There is this risk. I mean, there's a risk to living more fully than I'm living now. You know, there's a risk it could get worse. But of course, then the risk of not taking that chance is that I may just never live more fully than I'm living now. What might be a cultural container? 
I might think of vehicle traffic being directed to go certain ways through a city. It's unlikely that people are going to stray from those designated routes. Or I might think of walking pathways through the woods or a river running through a riverbank. How do those particular stones in the riverbank affect the water? How does the shape of the riverbank affect that flow, affect the land? Social rewards and demerits are like that, changing our individual behavior. Some may go outside what's considered acceptable, but most probably won't. Might ask ourselves, is play encouraged in these social circles in which I'm in? How about hard questions? Is it okay to ask them? Is it okay to challenge? What assumptions are there about what's important that may never be spoken aloud? What are the people around me striving for? All of this and more forms the shape of the container that I'm in, and the shape of that container will affect the choices that I make, even if I'm rebelling against it. On our camps and, and, and in our day programs with these kids, it really what it feels like is creating a different cultural container for them to actually follow their innate curiosity, to follow their instincts, and to just be fully human on the land because really there's no mystery to this like humans have been evolved steadily evolving for two million years and it was just by being open to the landscape as an alive dynamic other community of persons basically like alive beings and our curiosity and our senses and our instincts really are all we need to learn everything we need. You know, like we're not born with the knowledge, right, that we need, but we're born with the senses and the mind and the critical mind as well and the open heart and the empathy and the emotional intelligence and and our physical senses to actually start to receive so much information and inquire and really learn. And kids will do that on their own. Humans will do that on their own if the conditions are right. And actually, I, I feel like that's more about getting out of the way and, and, and just supporting what's naturally coming through from the land and through them. Um, and we see a, an amazing response from kids, you know, kids who just have these super mainstream lives. You know, they're, they're just full of this deep love, actually, for their lives, for their families, for their friends, for the mountains, for the water. They want to honor that. They actually want a chance in a space where it's okay to be like, that's really important to me. That fills me with joy. Or like, oh, that's scary to me. Oh, sleeping on the land for night. Whoa, that's a bit scary. You know, I've never done that before. Like, well, here's a different framework for it. It can be a beautiful connective experience rather than just, oh, you need to be aware of bears and you need to be aware of ants and you need to be aware. You know, it's, it's like putting those things a bit more in balance. It's a lot of effort to run these camps and to kind of try to design a structure and a framework and a container that might offer this kind of experience. Yeah, it's just so funny that 
nowadays we have to like plan that so intricately <laughs> you know when it's just it's our most natural way of being to be in these stories and to and to be telling the stories of the places we are and to be gathering things from the land to make things with and for us to be making practical things as well as beautiful things for us to be ceremonializing moments in our lives and ceremonializing a place that we are not like and for us to sing songs about it and for you know it's all just so natural um it can feel like you know being in this old village setting and you know there can be this natural flow through the day and this beautiful holding by the land but it's just kind of funny that like now we need programs to do that and you know permission to do that permits to do that all these mechanisms for reintroducing people to that something that's so instinctive and, and important yeah that's beautiful the gentleness of it strikes me like you say there there are bears out there you know there are ants and bears and drownings that is dangers there respect is important and at the same time it's a kind of play to go out there and you know how do you learn best playing right like it's the reason not only human kids but all the mammals i'm aware of and other creatures as well they they learn by playing Let's just start right where we are. You know, let's just start with the plant in front of us. Let's let's just be right in this situation and and explore it. It's all kind of games and singing and discussions and see what the kids are curious about and then go towards that and let's have some moments about that. And yet there's very much a container in the whole thing. There's a safety to it and there's also direction to it. This flexible container is really the sense I've got was ever flexible, strong container, you know, directing things, moving things around, keeping it safe, seeing the kids had a, a lot of say in how the container was shaped. It's quite beautiful. And in these apocalyptic times, to be learning to relate with the land in this gentle and playful way feels very important. And it, it feels, it feels joyful. Yeah, this intimacy with the land. I mean, to come back after we've talked about, you know, a whole lot of ideas and context and experiences, like ultimately to be in relationship with the land in the fullest sense is our greatest resource, basically, as individuals and as communities and as cultures. To be in full relationship with the land on every level, emotional, spiritual, physical, you know, and conversation, it's it's just, oh, it's incredible, you know? You, I mean, you don't need Netflix, <laughs> you know, if you're really engaged in that. Like, and it's my experience that deep engagement with the land leads to, you know, deep engagement with myself, my own story, my particular soul initiation kind of trajectory. And, and really a deep, I'd say at this point, a deep, knowing of who I am and why I'm here. That's all the security I need at this point, you know? Not that I'm, like, reckless or anything, but, like, the, the deeper longings in my life, the insane, anxious longings for meaning and purpose and understanding of myself, I don't experience that anymore, you know? I have this longing to be of full service. You know, I have this longing to, to fully embody my gifts and, and to fully honor my grief, you know, and there's a lot of grief there, just kind of constant, which is just so beautiful that I have access to that now. 
but yeah, it's like wow, it comes from the, it comes from so simply being engaged with the mysteries of nature, which comes actually just from being engaged with nature because nature is full of these mysteries. And yeah, really, I'd say for that to become the primary relationship in my life, you know, it, it becomes a foundation for all other relationships to include like that autonomy. You know, allow you can never escape the autonomy of the land. And you have to submit basically to being permeated by the world, permeated by the others. And that's that's a beautiful process if you can start to be in in, in courtship with that, in a dance with that, rather than having to like define yourself as something distinct or apart, which of course we are in some way too. But it's just it's the, the experience of being human. Is, is so incredible, you know, and particularly this part of being in relationship with the landscape, being shaped by a place, you know, like all these stories become a part of, of that shaping, you know, or they are a part of that shaping already, whether we realize or not, whether we know the stories or not, you know, but to learn those stories and start to understand some of the day-to-day -day stories of the land, who's hunting who, who's going where, for what reason, like why one particular tree is dying, or what that's saying about the climate or about the water quality like wow there's so much information about out there that holds so many stories that are literally keeping us alive the stories are alive just as the land is alive and and actually engaging that it's like has given me access to feeling to feeling fully alive and knowing the implications of that and the responsibilities of that and yeah i just i experienced that as a great blessing at this point, so I think that's where I'd, where I'd close. Yeah, just gratitude for the blessing of being here. I, I, I. Here is to the blessing of being alive. In this time, in this place. I'd like to thank you for listening. If you find these topics deep and worthy as I do, and would like to support more of these mineral-rich bubblings coming to the Earth's surface, you can do so on Patreon by looking for Story Paths. You'll also receive full interview recordings there, as well as artwork and original stories with themes related to these episodes. I hope to see you there. To hear more from Kester Reed about his forest school, you can go back in our archives and find an earlier interview with him and also look up his website, which I will link in the show notes. Next month, we'll be picking up threads from this episode about creative mentorship and spinning them into a full web. For now, let us rest. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, 
I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donohue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close. <laughs>